Hello, everybody. Welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are Joe Landry and Nori Olford, back again for another show, and we thank you all for being with us today. In this episode, we're going to continue with the extraterrestrial aspect of religion in terms of it as a theory by studying the symbolic meanings of the afterlife. There is both a functional and sociological approach to this theory, as well as a spiritual and mythological approach to it. And these are merely analytical methods to better understand how concepts like heaven, hell, perdition, and reincarnation are formed as mental schemata. Why is it that we have the belief in life after death? Obviously, culture and the societal environment have a lot to do with shaping these ideas. And as we like to always ask, could they have come about because our ancestors had encountered a race of alien beings at some time in the past? So hi there, Laurie. How's it going? What's going well, Joe? How about you? Pretty well. So what is it about the afterlife that fascinates us? And really, more than, we're more than fascinated by it. We're really obsessed with it. Well, uh, people are afraid of dying. We're afraid of the unknown. Uh, we don't know what happens after that, so we want some kind of reassurance that it's not the complete end of us, but in, instead just a temporary separation from those we love. So before we delve into the discussion, uh, we want to advise everyone that this episode will come across as sounding quite religious at times. Uh, we ask that you stick with us uh, because we are using our experience in religion to show that there may very well be the, an alien connection. We are not proponents of religion, and we are certainly not attempting to sway or convert anyone. We are merely asking the questions as to whether or not there has been a big misunderstanding handed down to all of us throughout the ages. With, with that said, let's, let's begin. Um, people want to believe that their existences go on and possibly uh, in and to a better place. So Christian cosmology is pretty elusive, uh, illustrative of the realms where everyone exists. We are born into this world that we live the best way we can for as long as we can with what we have, and then we just die. So after which we go to where God and the angels dwell. If, if we've accepted salvation through Jesus for Christianity, if not, then it seems we, we don't have a chance regardless of our ethics because of the original sin, which would be the, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. So we can't go to heaven and we're stuck going to hell where the devil and all the demons belong. Of course, there are many variations and convolutions to this. Um, I, I know Catholic and, and Orthodox theologies have the places of purgatory and paradise, which are intermediary or you know, transitory realms. Of, of course, the Mormons have their kingdoms as well, such as the kingdoms of the uh, celestial, uh, the terrestrial, and the, and the telestrial, and the uh, outer darkness. But regardless, when it comes to the afterlife, you're no longer here. You're some, some, somewhere else. Yeah, and if you're reincarnated, as some believe that happens, you're still not here as the self that you once were. You're someone or something else. Uh, other people believe that the dead exist in spirit form in our world until they're able to pass over or cross over into the appropriate realm like the way uh, Hollywood has presented it with movies like The Sixth Sense and What Dreams May Come, uh, that dead people's ghosts linger around to haunt us, but are otherwise invisible. And the idea of mortality, especially our own mortality, is something that's very troubling to us as humans. Death is a very disconcerting thing to contemplate happening to us. And it's also a very sad thing to witness it happening to someone else. It is a final goodbye. And with people we care about, we don't want a final goodbye. So it is through faith that we find a comfort and hope that uh, this is only a temporary goodbye so that we can deal with it better. Uh, the death of anything has an effect on us. Laurie, you and I have experienced the loss of family and loved ones, uh, some within just the past few years. And I know that all of our listeners have as well. All of us encounter the harsh reality that people and pets don't live forever. The question that comes to all of our minds is where do we go after we die? And will we, will we be reunited with those we knew and loved? Is there such a thing as the afterlife? Right. 
So we know about heaven, no matter what religious background. I think all of us have a uh, conceptualization of heaven. So what exactly is it and where is it? Is it even real? Is it a physical place? And if it is, then how do we get there? Now, Paul the Apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent from the body meant that we are then present with the Lord, which means that heaven is a spiritual place and we are immediately there upon our deaths. Uh, but what did Jesus say about it? In John 14, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions, also translated as rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, then I would have told you. So I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here, Jesus said he had to go away to prepare a place for us. And then he'll return and take us there. So this means that there is a distance to travel. Yeah, the scripture is very paradoxical about this. Uh, Paul writes in First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, in reference to the rapture, with Christ returning by descending from the sky to meet his believers in the clouds and thus evacuate them from earth. So with this, we have people going up into the sky, body and all, to go into heaven. And not only that, but this verse makes a strange conflation between sleep and death, as it even says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Right. And we always heard a little quip about them uh, needing a head start because they are six feet below the ground, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and don't forget in Acts 1 9, Jesus ascends up into heaven and his disciples watch him being lifted up into the sky as a physical body. Jesus' resurrected body is very problematic, not only in terms of how it violates the laws of physics, but in how it doesn't uphold the theological notion of that the spirit is separate from the body. He isn't a physical body, yet is able to pass through locked doors, as in John 20, 19 through 26. Of course, there is the whole mystery of transfiguration that Jesus seems to be able to do. But it leaves you wondering if, if we can do the same thing if we share in his resurrection, to which Paul alludes in Romans 6, 5. Is there some kind of metamorphosis between body and spirit and vice versa? This is where we get the idea of the parousia which Paul, John, and Peter mention, and it involves the reunification of a person's spirit with the person's body, a new and glorified body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 41-46, it says, We are sown in dishonor and raised in power, sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. So there is a, a very peculiar contradiction made with the comparisons between body and spirit and heaven and earth. They are different and separated, yet depicted as integra integral and united. At least it is that way through Jesus. It's also a problematic that Jesus says he, he has to leave and, and renovate heaven for us and then return again for us. How then could we be ready uh, to be in, there immediately upon our deaths? So in previous episodes, we explained that references to heaven could very well be references to a planet, quite possibly Nibiru, where the Anunnaki had come from. So we also suggested that heaven may be Om, which is an obscure word meaning world, and it is a place where some mystics uh, believe that God resides. The Jewish rabbi Gamliel said about 2,000 years ago in an old report, by, which was an old report by a Jewish rabbi, and stated that it will take a journey of 3,500 years to reach God's bolt, which is quite close to the elliptical orbit of Nibiru's journey of 3,600 years around our sun. Therefore, heaven is a planet. It, it, it has to be. So if you recall from t our two episodes with uh, Ryan and Mike about the topic of Mormonism, you know, we covered the idea of their belief that God lives on a planet, a physical planet called Kolob, that is somewhere out there, like way out there. Yeah, it's supposedly uh, near Polaris, uh, Cirrus, or Sagittarius A, or a nearest star in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And I guess the jury is still out on uh, which star system it belongs to. Yeah, right. And uh, if heaven truly is a planet, then this also may be why our bodies need to change from mortal to immortal, uh, not because of anything, anything spiritual, but physical. Uh, our bodies would need to change because the one we have now could not be able to adapt 
uh, to the differences in the gravity of another world. Um, therefore, we would need to be renewed. So it has to be more like the Anunnaki, maybe, who roam around uh, unimpeded on, on their planet, planet Nibiru. Yeah, this notion of heaven being a planet actually fits well within Ptolemaic cosmology. If you remember from Dante's The Divine Comedy, there were levels of heaven uh, and hell. And those levels fall into the classical model by which they correspond to spheres in which the planets moved around, as well as the, the sun and moon, all of which are inside one and the other, with the earth uh, being in the center, of course. Um, to the average medieval sky observer, these planets moved differently from the other stars, and so they were thought of as part of the heavenly realm. Uh, we've come a long way in our understanding of celestial mechanics, but back then, all of these things uh, going on in the sky were directly believed to be tied to theology and religion. Uh, even though many classical uh, ancient philosophers and mathematicians like Aristotle, Euclid, Pythagoras, and Aristosthenes had a more scientific comprehension of all of it, uh, much of it was considered to be the world of the divine, uh, not the world of outer space. And that persisted well through the Renaissance into the 18th century, a time we refer to as the Enlightenment. The Islamic idea of heaven, or jhana, also encompasses seven spheres or levels called samavat. And according to mystical interpretations of Surah 2131 uh, and 67.5, the lowest sphere is simply the celestial sphere which holds the observable universe the other six are beyond that and cannot be seen and it is there that allah dwells in paradise and the arab and persian artwork from the middle ages quite commonly depicts uh, these levels being sort of stacked one on top of the other above the ground where where the people are living so to think of heaven as being a planet is not really too uh, theologically far-fetched now of course if heaven is a planet you then you have to ask if hell is also a planet, in regard to that, it, it doesn't, it's hard to say if it seems so or not. The orthodox depiction of hell, uh, much like what we get from Dante's Inferno, is that it's not out there in the cosmos, but instead deep underground where all the hot magma is present. Right. And there really isn't anything in the Sumerian mythology about a place up, up there that is hell like. Um, I, I suppose there could be a, a Pinel. Or, or penal colony planet where the Anunnaki would send their condemned criminals. Uh, but really the only place we find that would match something like that is earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was there that they came to toil and work. So I suppose Mars could also fit that description. I don't know. Yeah. You know, all the classic uh, hellscape imagery we have is like that of a, vol a volcano as being a lake of fire with brimstone, with a cavern, and uh, it's sort of subterranean to look at it. You know, it's sort of an underground appearance. And when I think of a planet that would look like that, what comes to my mind is, is the one from Star Wars, where Anakin Skywalker is in a lightsaber duel with Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, where he gets burned and then becomes Darth Vader. Uh, yeah, um, um, Mustafar, right. Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, episode three. It was... It was a volcanic planet covered with uh, lava rivers. <laughs> yes, I think that one could pass for hell uh, if, if there was such a planet. <laughs> Otherwise, the, I think the only one that might come close to that is in Jupiter's moon Io, uh, which is supposedly pretty volcanic. And is there's also the moon Enceladus of Saturn and the moon Triton of Neptune. And, of course, the surface of uh, Venus is also really hot and nasty. Oh, yeah. All kinds of sulfur compounds. Um, all of that looks like hell. <laughs> yeah. Mars, yeah. Uh, Mars also apparently had a lot more volcanic activity about uh, 3 billion years ago. So it may have looked more hellish at, at one time, but, uh, but the mythology, the, um, um, the mythological and scriptural traditions show it as a subterranean place, you know, like with the uh, Greek Hades, the Hebrew show, uh, Egyptian dance, um, and Hindu Naraka. Um, even Ephesians 4 9 and 1 Peter 3 18 to 19 references Jesus descending into the lowest parts of the earth to rescue the righteous in what is called the, the harrowing of hell. You know, we, we also have to, also have to uh, do with what Jesus made. He's talking about um, this illusion uh, of, of the purgatory. 
because uh, he talks about Abraham's bosom in Luke 16, 22 through 26. And Abraham's bosom was separated from hell by this chasm. So if hell is subterranean, then this passage leaves us to assume that Abraham's bosom is also somewhere under the earth and that there is a lot of empty space between them. So we see that the scriptures are not very consistent with the damnation typology. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. No, that's correct. And, uh, yeah, hey, never know that empty space between them. There's a lot of empty space between planets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but during the time I was writing my book, uh, Little's to Sin, I was having some anxiety, uh, believing I was hidden there myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I wake up at like some night sweat sometimes thinking about this stuff, being <laughs> raised the way we were. Yeah. Um, but I decided to research it more thoroughly and found that, well, hell is an English word. but the thing is, Jesus never spoke English. So what word then did Jesus use? Well, it was a word called Gehenna, um, which was an actual place outside of Jerusalem. Uh, it was a crevice in the earth that was always uh, set afire. And the dead bodies of criminals were thrown in there along with the dead animal carcasses. Um, even some poor people who couldn't afford tombs, their bodies were thrown in there. So Gehenna even had gates that led down to it. Um, when Jesus told stories about Gehenna, uh, he used it as an analogy, and the people of his time knew exactly what he was referring to. You know, add a couple of thousand years to this, and and you have the long-lasting fires of Gehenna, and and bad people being burned there, and you know, mistranslated into the hell picture like we we have with uh, Dante's Inferno. Yeah, the Bible talks about Gehenna as the Hinnom Valley, and the word is actually a corruption of the phrase Valley of Ben Hinnom. Um, it was known back then to be a bad place with bad vibes, and it was where garbage and corpses would be dumped and burned in fires. It was dirty, and it stunk, and it's where the lepers were uh, supposed to go in order to isolate themselves from everyone else. It says in 1 Kings 11.7 that the Ammonites sacrificed children to their god Moloch, and the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah called it a horrible place of slaughter. And Jesus referenced it in the Gospels as a way to emphasize a place detestable to God, full of misery and suffering, and, you know, the the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and back then, the people of Jerusalem knew when someone said that they were going over to Gehenna, they weren't going to go to Dairy Queen. (laughs) And actually, we find that many cultures have these places, real places, where the connotation of darkness and evil is so pervasive that there are all kinds of folklore tying it with the netherworld, the abode of the dead, i.e. hell. In Greece, there is a necromation devoted to Hades and Parsifona and is believed to be the doorway to the underworld. In Ireland, there is Tekduin, which is an island uh, that is said to be where the departed souls uh, head west out over the ocean with the setting sun or else they go down into the abode. Uh, Mount Etna in Sicily and Mount Osore in Japan have also long been associated as being these uh, gateways into hell. Yeah, um, there are places all over the world with uh, local tales of places that have bad juju <laughs> and are said to be uh, passages to the underworld, which is under the ground, of course. Um, this is in contrast to the idea of glorious places of heaven up above. Now, Zechariah Sitchin wrote that man has always had an an infatuation with gold since civilization began. But the Sumerian gods required they they be served with food on golden trays and wine and vessels of gold. It is known as the royal metal, uh, therefore metal of the gods. In Agai 2.8, I know we stated this in previous shows, uh, that the Lord declares that the silver is mine and the gold is mine. So the Anunnaki were on a quest for gold, and that is what led them to earth. On their own world of Nibiru, there was 
um, a desperate need for gold dust to be dispersed into its atmosphere in order to assist with replenishing the damaged ozone layer. And the father of the Anunnaki and ruling king on Nibiru was Anu. He was the one who remained in heaven while his sons Enlil and Inki, as well as others, traveled back and forth in the bond even between heaven and earth, landing at different spaceports, set up you know, strategically around the earth. And this is a very prevalent idea about God having a grand residence somewhere up in the sky. Uh, really, we are all indoctrinated with this mental picture at an early age. I mean, probably as far back as you can remember, you've had this impression of lustrous gates of pearl, of gold roads and crystal castles, all surrounded by lush gardens with waterfalls and with beautiful uh, winged angels moving about. And in a huge palace is where God sits, a sort of Zeus-like figure with long white hair and a long white beard or, or and is on some kind of throne made of gold or maybe made of ivory or both and we all think this way about heaven and how it appears it is told to us by our parents our grandparents our sunday school teachers our priests and pastors uh, who all in turn learned to think of heaven in the same way even though none of us have ever seen it so how did such imagery make its way into our heads well, what we must understand about God through what the major organized religions have taught us is that God dwells somewhere. Um, God is from another place outside of earth. Now, this abode of God is believed to be a, a, this place called heaven. And if you have been following our podcast up to now, you know that we have been, in, have been attempting to show the ancient alien connection in our civilization through science and religion. Uh, therefore, the connection we made with heaven not only being a distant dream in some star system, but of being compared to Nibiru, uh, compared to Olam and Kolob. It makes more sense than our current beliefs through religious dogma. The notion of heaven being paved with you know, pure gold is congruent with what the Sumerian, in the Sumerian account tells us about Nibiru, with it having a plentitude of gold. In Revelation 21, 11 through 23, we get some very elaborate details about the New Jerusalem with it being of gold so pure that it's as clear as glass and having walls that were uh, made of jasper. And uh, the city was completely made of gold. I mean, talking gold that's so pure, it's clear. I can't even picture something like that. Um, and it is said that the 12 gates uh, were 12 pearls. And every several gates that there were uh, had more than one pearl. Uh, and it is also said that to have, a, was to have a foundation of jasper, sapphire, emerald, amethyst, just to name a few. So this vision is really meant to embellish on the grandeur of God's reign from heaven upon earth, to be very lavish and using these valuable metals and, and gems to depict that. Yeah, that same passage also describes the New Jerusalem as a uh, heavenly city, as a gigantic cube. Um, actually, measuring approximately 1,380 miles each way. It's huge. Um, to put its uh, sheer size into perspective, it only takes just 62 miles to reach space. Think about that. So from the west coast of the United States to, uh, to the east coast, uh, it is about uh, 3,000 miles. So this cube city is just about half the size of the United States. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy. So John the Evangelist said he saw this city as descending from the sky. Um, this cube might just be what Jesus was talking about when he said he is going away to prepare uh, a place for us. He's probably going to prepare it for us. Um, it was constructed on Nibiru, where it will most likely be launched to arrive here before Nibiru uh, closes in on its orbit next time around. Now, even if the dimensions of this new Jerusalem are exaggerated, and I do believe that they are greatly exaggerated. Um, it is clear uh, an enormous spaceship that arrives uh, is lands here. Is that what's being depicted? Yeah, it may be. Uh, it may be like that board ship from Star Trek coming to assimilate us. Um, it is a little bit laughable, but it does sound eerily similar to assimilation from what we read in uh, Revelation twenty-one four. It says, and God shall wipe away all tears from, our, from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Somewhat comforting. Uh, this verse is about 
Yeah, this spoke, this verse is spoken a lot at funeral services to reassure us that the, the pain felt over someone's death will no longer be something to worry about at some point in the future. Uh, yet it's also a little disconcerting as it seems like our cerebral substrate uh, becomes altered such that we no longer have a range of emotions to experience. Uh, perhaps this is just an appeal to the stone, but it, it seems we would no longer have the human essence of free will. If we all we could do is be joyful all the time, um, it makes you wonder if we really have the actual um, sort of properties and essence of uh, the human mind. And I suppose that's just uh, uh, an existential dilemma uh, talking about. That's what I see, because we will be assimilated. Yes. <laughs> and nevertheless, uh, can you imagine something that massive landing on Earth, though? Uh, like, where the heck? Are they supposed to park that thing? Yeah, it would. Um, it would take up. It would have to hit the ocean at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and well, if it's only sixty-two miles to reach space, that's still over thirteen hundred miles extended into space. I mean, it's taking up the atmosphere too. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work. I, I don't know. I I wonder if Antarctica will be the landing pad. Um, yeah, one of the poles, of course. Can Can you imagine though the the a, the huge tsunami? Uh, this will cause if it lands in the ocean, like you said. <laughs> well, sure. That's why I think that the dimensions are exaggerated. I don't think it's really quite um, extending 62 miles into space. I mean, it could, even if it's even so, it's going to be big. It's going to be big. Uh, yeah, you, well, you know it's got to be exaggerated because he, he he even must have exaggerated on the giants. Remember that? He right. Like, what, 400 yeah. something feet tall. Yeah. Come, yeah. Uh, that's, but but this ship will, I mean, look like a large growth. <laughs> Matched itself to the earth, right? I mean, yeah. um, I'm wondering if planet Nibiru would have lost its atmosphere by then, and 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 that this would be the Anunnaki's way to escape. They came here in this you know, cube. Now, also, John says this city does not need the sun for light because God provides its own light. Well, I think of that, I can see this as the ship's own electrical source, which is you know, which John's ancient mind didn't comprehend. He also wrote about it having river and fruit trees and where we will live forever. Well, this reminds me of that movie uh, uh, Elysium, where a huge space station was above the Earth that had its own biospheres and, and medical technology that stopped aging and disease. So perhaps the afterlife may be uh, something more scientific than spiritual. And so when we get into the concept of immortality, we run into the biggest challenge to our faith, that of believing it without ever seeing it. None of us have witnessed a person come back from the dead, someone being truly dead, being biologically dead. Uh, they don't come back to become alive again. We know this because the bodies are either destroyed or they decompose. This is a fact. The stories of the undead, like with vampires and zombies, or of the Frankenstein monster, are fiction. They are not real. So if the body breaks down into a form that will not support life functions, then how are we to believe that we get them back and proceed to exist in them? Well, well we can't. I mean, the old body definitely breaks down organically. Um, this is easily proven. So the only way we can live on is with a new body. And yes, a different body. Our physical selves do indeed go away, but... Does that mean our existential selves don't continue on in something like another dimension, maybe? Um, our consciousness may be something like uploaded software, to, to give an, an analogy. Uh, from birth, we go through life, and it's on this journey that we obtain our spirituality and our personalities, which continues on long after our, our avatars, which is what our bodies may just be, uh, perish away. When you consider a computer, what about it uh, gives its essence? Uh, what makes it do what it does? It's, uh, is it the hardware or, or the software? Uh, of course, it is both, but the, many of the programs and, and much of the data stored in the memory circuits and, 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 and solid state drives off a computer are, are not bound to that one particular machine. Now, we see it can be taken from it, and then put into the memory of another computer. In fact, this software can be stored in the memory on many different remote servers on the internet. So what we call the, the cloud and the computer that uploaded it can be completely destroyed, yet the programs and data that were on it still exist 
and it can be downloaded onto the other can on the other computer service with no change to it. And I need to sip a on my whiskey. Uh, and the software still exists, uh, just in different pieces of hardware. Uh, you still need the hardware in order for it to be contained and for its processes uh, to be applied for some purpose. This is much like how our minds need a brain in which for it to be stored and for which its processes must be applied for some purpose in the material world. Yeah, deep stuff, exactly. So could it be that, that way with our consciousness? Um, now, are our minds part of something like an, an Ethernet that connects to a worldwide web so, such that information can be stored and downloaded from somewhere else, uh, even after the system that, that did the upload is no longer there? And could it be that Jesus was demonstrating this with his resurrection? Uh, think about it. Was this perhaps the true reason for Jesus Christ coming to us? Um, not so much to redeem us from hell but to show us that we actually are, uh, that our true nature is immortal. Perhaps he, he wanted to enlighten us in this way, since he, he knew that we did not comprehend that we are immortal, uh, because that knowledge was withheld from us at the very beginning. Right. Was that the salvation he was actually talking about, uh, salvation from unawareness? Uh, we find in the Gospels that Jesus often becomes frustrated with people failing to comprehend his metaphors and parables. Uh, maybe his teachings were uh, so often misunderstood by his disciples, as we see in the case with so many other things with people having these misunderstandings. Uh, when you, so when you really look at the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you see that he is actually reincarnated into a new body. And we find that even those who were close to him uh, didn't recognize him at first. And in Luke 24, 13 through 32, two disciples walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and didn't know it was him until after he breaks bread and then he vanishes. Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him at first either. In John 20, 14 through 18, when she is by the tomb talking to him, thinking he's the gardener until he speaks her name and then tells her not to touch him because he is not yet ascended to the father. Um, not exactly sure what... He's referencing in that way, and there's been a lot of uh, theological controversy over what the meaning of that statement truly is. Um, so clearly his appearance and bodily form was different in the way it was before his crucifixion. And reincarnation is normally thought to be a tenet of Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, but it is not a stranger to Christianity. Early church fathers like Origen, Valentinus, Basilides, and Justin Martyr taught about all souls being eternal and all souls returning to God, even after successive cycles of birth and death. Of course, it later became condemned as a heresy, uh, but yet we still have this facet of the resurrection narrative where Christ is not recognized or revealed in the way of his body, but instead as the logos, uh, as a epiphany, or is revealed in some sort of sacramental way. Yeah, uh, many people do believe in reincarnation as our path to immortality. And it seems to fit more closely uh, to the words of uh, Jesus than many Christians realize. Uh, th think about how he promised us eternal life in John when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Obviously, we've seen many people who believe in him who have indeed died and are no longer here. And the hope is that they are now in heaven. But uh, what if his statement was meant to be understood in a different way? So, uh, put aside whether or not you believe in, in Christ and think about what his, what this statement means. I, I think it's possible that Jesus was a descendant of the Anunnaki, maybe even the, the son of Inki, who, who loved this human creation so much and, and that he had empathy for us. Um, he very well would, would under, understand our mental processes in our limbic systems. And he was instrumental in the genetic engineering proje project that uh, uh, created us. And he would have known that a powerful spiritual and charismatic figure could tap into our emotions and our passions and thus lead a movement that would bring humanity closer to comprehend the truth about God. Uh, this idea, of course, would, would have been forbidden by Anu and Enlil and most of the other Anunnaki. So if Inky devised the plan, perhaps in secret, and so that by way of uploading his consciousness and knowledge into the specimen, 
think of it almost like a software package, uh, which was later artificially inseminated into a chosen woman with the right kind of DNA to give birth to his son, the star child, a.k.a. Jesus Christ. Now, if humans had the same longevity of their creators, um, then we would have already by now exhausted the planet of its resources. Uh, we would have overpopulated it long ago. So that issue might have had something to do with the Anunnaki not wanting us to have extended lifespans. But could Jesus then have come to show humanity that life here, though relatively brief, is not who we really are, and that we have inner beings, which are our consciousness, and that has the capacity uh, to continue on living. So this may be why there are so many near-death experiences where people leave their bodies and see themselves from the outside. Yeah, I remember uh, attending Catholic Mass not too long ago, where I heard a, a priest give a homily about the cosmic Christ. And he made a reference to the book written by Richard Rohr called The Universal Christ, which talks about the Christ, not Jesus, but Christ as an ever-encompassing presence that is eternally manifested throughout all of creation, but perfectly and completely present in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, it is to say the universal truths of all religion emanate from the same source, yet are fully incarnate in, in him. Uh, now, I thought this would be a little unusual, as it had a hint of Gnosticism to it, uh, as it puts the emphasis on Christ as the Son of God, as more detached from Jesus as the Palestinian Jew who lived 2,000 years ago which could borderline on heterodoxy. I think if this priest gave this homily at a time prior to Vatican II, it would have been labeled as universalism and hence heresy. Uh, Jesus the human and Jesus the, the divine are believed to be fully, completely, and perfectly one and the same nature, uh, the two essences in one entity. But the cosmic Christ echoes the concept of a consciousness or a memory or a personality, if you will, that is indeed ever-present and not confined to a body. Uh, I once heard uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson explain in an interview that death is much like it was before you were born. So you have no memory before you were born, and you did not exist. So he said that death is much the same way. You will cease to exist, and you will not know about it. Well, after hearing that, I thought to myself, well, that's his opinion. Uh, even though he is a very intelligent man, he still cannot prove that statement. Um, none of us can prove the existence of life after death. Therefore, anyone's opinion on the subject is no less defensible than his. I, I have my own personal experience, which, which no scientific explanation can explain. And many times I, I've reached the uh, inference that there is nothing after this life. But there's always a but, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I kept thinking back to my own experience, which I wrote about in my book, and I started to believe that there is another realm or a higher level of consciousness that exists beyond our bodies. And this realm or level can exist independently of our bodies. However, this is true to me. I, I cannot prove to anyone that it was a real event. Personally, I am convinced. Um, so maybe this is what Christ came to do to show us this hope that we are merely avatars. And that our true essence of who we are is even more real than the bodies we occupy and drive around, so to speak. <laughs> um, so Inky may have pulled another one on the Anunnaki Council, once again, by secretly putting that hidden code into our genetics without their knowledge, just like he saved us by warning Zeosudra, the biblical Noah, about the flood. Uh, the council wanted our demise, but thank goodness others did not. So they understood the bad end of this bargain uh, to know of your final exit and the pain of losing loved ones in this life to never, you know, ever see them again. Uh, it is a cruel and harsh punishment to place upon a conscious creation. So enter Starman, better known as uh, Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned before about Carl Jung's theory on the uh, collective unconscious, a sort of level of thought and memory that derived from inherited mental structures and are common to all people in which uh, there's a conglomeration of knowledge and imagery that are manifested through dreams and intuition. Now, he believed it was something that connects all of our awarenesses, our memories, and all of our other mental processes uh, one to another at a certain level. You can almost call it the superconscious. 
And it is a similar in, in a concept uh, that is a little more mystical as known as the Akashic Records. So some of us have heard about this, you know, the Akashic Records is sort of like the cloud computing on the internet, like I, like I mentioned, but instead of wet servers being connected to it, um, it is our minds that are connected to it, like an extremely complex network. It's a hypothesis that was introduced by spiritualists and occultists of the late 19th century to give validity to paranormal activity like seance and clairvoyance. So the idea was that there was a special plane of consciousness which can be accessed through the use of higher mental processes such that people could travel out of their body or see into the future or even communicate with dead spirits. Uh, which which is what we see in one of the old stories of uh, King Saul going and speaking to the dead spirit of Samuel, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yes, uh, theosophy. Um, and that was an esoteric universalist movement of the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it sought to synthesize everything from Eastern mysticism and Jewish Kabbalah to Freemasonry and even to the teachings of Aristotle. It's a real hodgepodge. Um, and it strives to show a higher level of consciousness and spiritual connectivity among all things. Now, one of the things on which its followers elaborated is that there is a life force that permeates the entire universe, and it involves energy, as well as intelligence, memory, and awareness, and it flows through all life forms. Uh, it is a compendium of all thoughts and emotions that have ever happened and ever will happen. And yeah, the Akashic Records would be comparable to the Force, uh, like from Star Wars. It's uh, also similar to the idea of Buddhist chi or Hindu prana, which are some terms you might hear if you are in a yoga class. So while this may sound very mystical and sort of hippie-like, uh, hippie talk, um, there is some basis for this principle that is found in quantum theory in what is known as the zero-point field. According to Lynn McTaggart's book, The Field, there are fluctuations of energy throughout the universe such that a change in some point in space is manifested in all other points in space. So this may be an oversimplified analogy, but consider a swimming pool that is undisturbed, okay? The water is completely still and at rest, and it is so uniformly through and through. Now, if we were to stir up the water in one part of the, the pool, the energy state would change with rise and fall of waves, and this would permeate throughout the entire pool. A change in one part of the pool could be easily detected and manifested in all the other parts of the pool. So with the universe as a singularity, quantum changes in the electromagnetic background in one part of time and space are actually changes in the whole as it is a deviation from its zero point. Now, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying this. <laughs> the mathematical modeling of this theory is very, very complex. But from what some neuropsychologists believed, or do believe, the zero point field may actually affect some aspects of our higher mental functioning. So could this be the unity and the connectivity with all of the electromagnetic energy? Um, could that be the higher realm we're talking about? You know, the collective unconscious, the Akashic records, the cosmic Christ, the universal soul. Could this be a clue into perpetual existence? Um, so, you know, in 1995, a German scientist at the University of Freiburg carried out what I think sounds like a pretty uncanny experiment with the use of a, a video recording camera and a color television set. Yeah, I've heard about this. Uh, they summoned up their uh, the, the Swedish colleague, uh, Friedrich Jurgensen. Uh, he had been deceased since 1987. Now, when he was alive, Jurgensen carried out many of these uh, kind of experiments in his 1967 book, Voice Transmissions with the Deceased. So after being nearly certain that they were receiving psychic messages from uh, Jurgensen uh, in the way of oddities being seen on their computer monitor, they went ahead and aimed a video recorder at the television set, only to see Jurgensen's face on the screen for about half a minute with the garbled sound of his voice being heard uh, on the speaker that they could not decipher. In another room, their computer was on, and there was uh, a message from Frederick Jurgensen's old email address with his name typed out on the screen. Like, yeah, it's an intriguing and eerie account, uh, as Jurgensen had been dead for eight years when they did this. 
and it's found in Bill uh, Eigel's article, Sound and Pictures from the Other Side. However, the authenticity of the scientists' work uh, was immediately called into question after they wrote their paper. It seems that they were unable to repeat the process to get the same results when more, what to say, more scrutinized <laughs> were observing them. Yeah, so, so where does uh, heaven and, and an afterlife fit into our psyche? Um, it, it, it all comes from our mythology. The idea of heaven may very well have been ingrained onto um, our, our collective mental fabric from what was told about Nibiru uh, from where the alien Anunnaki came. To our ancient ancestors, they would have been seen as God or the pantheon of gods. And their home planet would have been seen as heaven. You know, I, I had a strange dream one time. Um, it was about a year before that Marvel movie Thor uh, came out. Uh, in it, I was in a field sitting in my patrol car. It was at nighttime. And in the sky uh, to, my, to the south was an um, Earth-like planet approaching. As it got closer, it was as if it was going to collide with, with our planet. And I was then transported immediately away to this other world that had a clear blue sky and, and the fields were mountains all around them. Um, and, but they contained these crystal looking cities uh, with, with the, the whole tall skyscrapers and uh, they were detailed in gold and bronze. And, and I was awestruck when I woke up. I mean, um, so about a year later, my wife and I went and went to see Thor and in the first scene, I believe it was the first scene, can't remember, but um, there is the approach of the heavenly Hasgard. Well, I was just amazed. I was astonished at this uh, since it, it, I immediately was brought back to that dream because it looked almost exactly what I had seen in that dream. And I thought it was pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, perhaps it was something there with the collective unconscious. Perhaps so. And I think Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung would have been quite fascinated to hear all about your dream. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they would have. Um, so I think heaven and hell may derive from ancient references to planets, uh, heaven being Nibiru and hell being some other planet, possibly a fiery volcanic one that serves as a penitentiary for those to carry out life sentences of uh, hard labor, slaving away in the gold and mineral mines of a bleak and miserable world. Uh, maybe the worst of our society will be serving slash working uh, for the Anunnaki there. Um, Hitler might be there right now. Who knows? <laughs> While the uh, the good humans serve slash work for for them on Nibiru, maybe the they'll be the ones holding up uh, huge grapevines over the mouths of the uh, gods as they indulge. <laughs> yeah. uh, but better than slaving away on the planet, uh, planet hell. Am I right? Oh yeah, anything is better than that. Um, so as for me, I don't think that there is a hell at all. Uh, if there is such a thing as soul. And if there is such a thing as God, uh, who is abundant in mercy and grace and blessings, as is taught to us, then there is no eternal punishment, um, but at most, only a temporary uh, separation from him. I'm reminded of the Greek word apokatathesis, which means a return to God. And it comes from an early theology that was embraced by some of the church fathers in the third century AD. And with it, there is a sort of scattering of souls, something like the sparkles that are dispersed around a snow globe when it's shaken. After a while, the sparkles all go back to where they were before the globe was shaken. Apocatastasis is like that, in that all souls, good and evil, eventually, at some point, return to God. It is like our destiny. But nobody knows for sure about the afterlife. Almost everyone affirms the belief in it through their own personal faith, but no one has proven that it is real. Even St. Augustine, the great theologian, implied that heaven and hell were not places per se, but spiritual states in which one is in the absence of God, that being darkness, or in the presence of God, that being light. So without rigorously applying the scientific method to find a truth, all we're left with is speculation. And it is, as you said, Lori, no one person's opinions or beliefs are less defensible than another until they can be empirically proven, demonstrated, or tested. And there we have it, inconclusive. Inconclusive, unlike our show, to which we now conclude. A good one. Very uh, pithy. <laughs> I was going for pithy. <laughs> uh, that is all that we have for today, folks. Uh, Lori and I really enjoyed this topic, and we hope you did too. 
Uh, next episode, we're going to talk about a subject uh, that is a, a little less abstract. Uh, we're going to talk about Roswell. So still a cerebral topic, but well, uh, one that's maybe a little less academic. Yeah, not as philosophical, maybe. Um, yeah, like how we've had with the, a lot of our other episodes, but yeah, really. <laughs> but we're we're going to bring the season to a close with the famous Roswell UFO crash of 1947. Uh, it's an episode we're sure you're going to enjoy. You don't want to miss it. Um, we'll provide our detailed analysis on the subject and, and how we believe it was most likely a UFO crash. And not something as simple as a, you know, a weather balloon. There's more. There's a lot more to that story. Definitely. It's an incident that I would say has shaped UFO enthusiasm to the way we know it today. And it's helped bring to the very forefront the question of whether or not we are alone. So we appreciate all of you for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you again next week. And as the Zoroastrians say, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Bye, everyone. Uh, so long, folks. Uh, don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, we'll see you next time. Have a safe week. Take care.